Welcome, and thank you for tuning into this week's episode of Maryland's Most Notorious Murders, where the most gruesome, the most heinous, the most eye-popping, newsworthy, high-profile homicide chases in Maryland are examined and profiled. This season, season three, relationship murders or husband-wife boyfriend-girlfriend type murders are discussed and profiled. On this episode, the shooting murder of 49-year-old William Raymond Porter is profiled and the unsolved shooting murder of 27-year-old transgender Ashanti Carmen is examined. Okay, this is a case of your word against mine and this is also a case of what happens when you don't quote unquote cover your ass let's take a trip to white marsh maryland in baltimore county real quick where we meet mrs carla louise porter in 1982 carla met william raymond porter and after four years of dating in 1986, they got married. From the very beginning of their relationship, Carla said that her husband was physically, verbally, and mentally abusive. But somehow the couple managed to have five kids together. The couple lived together and made a modest living off of their Hess gas station that they owned in the 1600 block of East Joppa Road in Towson. Together, they ran the gas station for 15 years while Caller allegedly endured years of abuse. Beginning in June of 2009, plans were made for the couple to move to Florida, but Carla didn't want to move to Florida with her husband, so she decided to make other plans. She decided she was going to get rid of her husband for good. Everybody in her family knew about her plans, including her kids, her sister, her nephew, her brother, everybody but her husband. First, she approached her daughter's boyfriend and she asked him, you know, could he get rid of her husband? And she even paid him a $1,000 deposit to take care of her husband. But her daughter's boyfriend just laughed it off. He kept the money and he did nothing. A week before Christmas in 2009, Carla asked one of her co one of their co-workers to take him out. The co-worker told her he would see what he can do, and he told her that he would make some calls for her. She started blowing up his phone, bugging him about it until he he too just blew her off and stopped taking her calls. And again, nothing happened. Now, in, in January of 2010, she asked a friend if she knew where she can get some potassium cyanide so she could poison her husband. Again, her friend was like, well, she is not getting involved. She's like, I don't know nothing about nothing. And nothing happened again. I mean, Carla wasn't playing around. She was serious. She wanted her husband gone and she didn't care how it was gonna happen. She just wanted him gone. Now, finally, when none of them could provide what she wanted, her nephew finally finally referred her to somebody he knew that could take care of her problem. And there, in a Walmart parking lot, a meeting took place of what was to be done 
and how much it would cost. Her nephew's friend agreed to shoot Carla's husband for a fee of $9,000. See, he had child support debt that he needed and he needed as much money as he could get so he can get child support off his ass. So yeah, I mean, in his mind, he figured I'll go kill somebody I don't even know because he supposedly beats on his wife to pay off some child support debt. Okay, now anyway, her nephew's friend agreed to kill Carla's husband and he left the parking lot with a $400 deposit. Now, the plan was real simple. You know, people get killed in robberies almost every day in Maryland. Like, it's, it's, sometimes they don't even make the news, especially in Baltimore City. So, what she was just going to, the plan was she was going to, Carla was going to lure her husband to the gas station where she was going to let the shooter in. He was going to shoot and kill her husband. And they were going to make the murder look like a robbery gone wrong. After he was dead, Carla was going to call 911 and report the robbery. Case closed. And she wanted this done ASAP because she was tired of bullshitting around and she wasn't trying to go to Florida with her husband and especially not without her family around to protect her. So after she found a person to do her dirty work, on the early morning hours of March the 1st, 2010, the plan was set and in motion. Normally, William got up for work around 4, 4.15 a.m. This morning, Carla intentionally set off the alarm, the security alarm at the gas station, and she told her husband that she just got a call from the lawn company that the lawn was going off. Now, William got dressed and headed on down to the gas station. After he left out, she called her brother, who agreed to pick up the shooter and his friend and drive them to the gas station. Before they all headed over to the Hess gas station, Carla met up with her brother, who was the driver. She met up with the shooter and he brought his friend along. And they all met up at a nearby McDonald's where they discussed the details and the plans. In all, she made like a total of 53 phone calls to the shooter, convincing him and confirming confirming all the arrangements and convincing him not to back out of this plan. Once the plan was confirmed, Carla gave the shooter a handgun that her sister had given her. Her sister had given her specifically for this purpose to kill her husband. She headed over to the gas station like she normally would. When she got there, her husband, who was on crutches from a prior injury was talking to a friend on the phone. Carla started busying herself with opening up inventory and restocking shelves, you know, like a normal workday. At one point, she left out of the gas station, but when she came back in through a side door, she let the shooter in. The shooter ordered both Carla and William to move into the back of the gas station. Then the shooter pulled out handgun from his pocket and shot 49-year-old William Ray Porter one time in the head. The blast caused William to collapse to the ground. And when he did, the shooter stood over him and fired a bullet to his face, ending his life. After the shooter left the gas station, Carla played her role and called 911, telling this time, after she called 911, she told telling the police that the shooter was a black man approximately six feet tall maybe 25 years old and wearing a black hoodie 
I mean, I got a question though. Why is that like the standard description in uniform every time some that somebody uses that every time they try to describe like who robbed them or who tried to do whatever to them? They always say it was a black man wearing a hoodie. <laughs> it's like the standard go-to description, like honestly. But anyway, at first the investigators they went along with this story the police and everything, they went along with the story and they put up like a $10,000 cash reward for any information on this black suspicious suspect that would lead them to an arrest or conviction. Carla went about her merry way, but when the news media got word of the description of the suspect being a black 25 year old, approximately 25 year old man wearing a hoodie, it completely spooked one of the men that she had approached earlier about killing her husband. And he was like, the uh, actual shooter, he was like, wait a minute, hold up. He was like, he ain't like the way she described that. So especially, you know, by her saying it was a black man and, you know, he didn't like that description. So he felt like that the description sounded way too close to home, way too much like him. And plus, he had known all about the plot, um, and she had approached him, and he had knew about all the plans about her killing her husband, and so he was like, wait a minute, I think not. This is not a good look. This ain't looking too good for me. So he was like, hold up, hold up, wait, wait, hold, hold. So he was like, and plus, the actual shooter was a white man, and he ain't like the way that this whole thing was playing out. So he decided that he was going to go to the detectives with what he knew. So he told the detectives that Carla had approached him several times a few months back and asked him to kill her husband, but he had refused. He had turned down the offer, but he did admit that he did take some of her money. He said he never intended to kill nobody and he was just trying to get some money. He was like, he ain't want no parts of any suspicion to fall back on him because he ain't had nothing to do with nobody getting killed. And he was just like, look, I'm trying to clear my name. So the investigators, they took it a step further and they asked him if he would agree to wear a wire to try to implicate Carla in her husband's murder. And he was like, sure, no problem. I ain't got no beef. So while wearing a wire, he called Carla and told her that because of the description that she gave to the police, that they might think that he was the killer and he wasn't feeling that at all. So he was like, I'm going to need some money to not only get the fuck out of Dodge for a minute, but I'm also going to need some money so I won't tell them what I know about you and your husband's murder and what I know what you asked me to do. Especially how he knew that it wasn't some black dude who did it. So Carla, she was like, all right, and she paid him $700 to keep his mouth shut about what he knew. Of course, he didn't have to because the whole conversation was being recorded. And right after it was being recorded and taped and brought back to the police on March 6, 2010, less than a week after William was shot to death in his gas station, while she was passing out bookmarks and wildflowers in his memory at his viewing, Carla was arrested and charged for the first-degree murder of her husband. Neighbors were shocked when they heard about Carla's arrest. She was real friendly, very gracious as a person. She was very given, very given person, one of her neighbors commented to the Baltimore Sun. 
At first, when questioned by the detectives, Carla still stuck to her story, you know, that William was confronted by a thief at the gas station and got shot. The detectives were like, look, lady, look, stop it. We got you on tape, honestly. So when she was confronted with the evidence that they got from the wiretapes, she confessed, sort of. She started crying and said that she only paid the shooter $400 to go beat her husband up, but he wasn't supposed to kill nobody. Then she went on to explain that she had no choice, like no other choice at all in killing him because she just knew she was 100% positive that he was about to kill her first. And she gave up everybody else who was in on the murder plot. She told on, she told on the shooter, she told on her brother who drove him there, she told on her sister who gave her the gun, and she told on her nephew who told her about the shooter. And they all were arrested and charged with murder and conspiracy to commit murder. Now, all of them, with the exception of Carla, they quietly admitted their part in William's murder. They didn't fight for plea deals. They didn't try to snitch their way into a deal or lie on each other to save their skin or to save themselves and all that. They took their deals and all of them got life sentences with all but 20 years suspended. But Carla, it's it's always the ringleader. Carla insisted that she was innocent, or at the very least, she insisted that she shouldn't have to face a first-degree murder charge, even though she admitted to planning his murder. Carla insisted that because she had been living in fear of her husband and walking on eggshells, that she should face the lesser charge of manslaughter because she only planned it because she was scared that he was going to kill her first. Now, claiming her husband physically, emotionally, and verbally abused her for years, Carla claimed that killing him was her only choice, her only option, she told the detectives. She, she decided to take this defense to trial, all the way to trial, and Carla's case became the first murder case in Maryland where an accused murderer was claiming a defense of spousal abuse in a murder for hire case. The prosecutors decided to, to pursue the death penalty. The death penalty for her, this was their answer for that. And at one point she did face a death penalty. When Carla's trial started, several people took the, they took the stand in her defense, including her 18 year old daughter who testified in her defense. Her daughter told court that her home life was often tense and controlled and her father, he was mad all the time for whatever reason. And she testified that she would notice how scared, how submissive and how stepwifeish her mother was, you know, how stepwifeish, I should say, her mother was around her father. And yeah, she had seen her mother with bruises here and there and a black eye once. And oh yeah, she said she did see, she did hear her father call her mother names and yell at her from time to time. And maybe she heard a few of the thump, few thumps every now and then from their bedroom all the way from, you know, all, from all the way to her bedroom in the basement. But she could not say one time where she ever witnessed her father hitting her mother. Then Carla was bold enough to take the stand in her own defense. In crucial detail, 
she painted for the court a horrible picture of abuse and turmoil. You know, she detailed for the court how the abuse started shortly after they met and progressed over two decades. In graphic testimony that lasted over two hours, Carla described to the court how over the years, her husband had beaten her with a bat on her back and legs, hit her with a rake, hit her with a wooden board, punched her with his fist, beat her with a toolbox, pushed her head into her mother's tombstone and told her that she should be with her dead mother, stabbed a drill into her stomach that left a big permanent scar, kicked her in the side, shoved her head in weakened sewage and smeared, her, smeared dog shit on her back. <laughs> she testified that she was forced to stand on the kitchen sink or forced to drink water until she pissed on herself. She told the court that her husband would put her down and constantly call her degrading names like lazy bitch, fat cunt, and over and over. And he just drilled into her head that she was worthless and wasn't good for shit. She said that once that once he pointed a gun at her and he told her he was going to kill her. And in the months before he did this, she said that she had gotten even more scared and paranoid. And she was scared and paranoid because, according to her, he was planning to move to Florida. And supposedly, he told her that he was going alone and that they weren't taking their children or his parents with them like they had planned. Now, while on a previous trip to Florida, she said that William had threatened to feed her to the alligators there. So she was terrified to go to Florida. A week or two before he was killed, Carla said that he put a gun on her, to her head and was like, man, I'm not even going to take you. I should just kill you now. This dude was in crutches and she said a few days after they threatened her with the gun, a few days after he threatened her with a gun, that he hit her on her back with one of the crutches because he was bored. She told the court that he had that she had had enough and she was scared and terrified on a daily basis. I was in fear for my life. I knew it was getting to the point where Ray was getting out of control. I knew it was a matter of time before he killed me. Things were getting so bad, things were get but just out of control. I just I know it was crazy. I was just all day. It was a day by day. It wasn't even a day by day thing. It was a minute to minute, always walking on eggshells. I never could do anything on my own. Something as simple as taking a shower. It was getting so bad that I knew that Ray was going to kill me and I just wanted to kill him first. His name was William, but everybody called him Ray. She said that if they went to Florida without the family there to protect her or without her family there to protect her, that he would be more liable to kill her. If Ray were alive, I would be dead, she insisted to the court. The prosecution fought back and they fought back hard. They were like, all this was just, if all this was just going on, why didn't you just get a divorce? Because he would just follow me. I know there was no getting away. Carla's whole defense, that's what she said. But her whole defense was based on abuse that allegedly happened, but with no real proof to even support it. And her case was the first time a battered wife syndrome defense was used in a planned murder for hire case in Maryland. Both sides litigated vigorously and fought to the death. And after a five day trial, in the end, a Harford County Circuit Court jury of nine women and three men deliberated for five hours before finding Carla guilty of first degree murder and conspiracy to commit first degree murder. Carla showed no outward emotion 
or she showed no emotion the whole time. At, at, like none of it. The prosecution has said all along that that man was shot while he was on crutches and posed absolutely no immediate threat to Carla and that her defense, all of this battered wife syndrome was an insult and a disgrace to real victims of domestic violence. And at sentencing, the judge showed absolutely no mercy when he sentenced Carla, now 51 years old, to life plus 40 years in prison without the possibility for parole. After Carla got sentenced, Williams' brother made a statement to reporters for the Baltimore Sun that read, we feel like justice has finally been served for Ray. Carla was a part of our family. When we found out that she was involved in part and actually orchestrated this whole thing, obviously it was even harder for us because once again, she was part of our family for 20 some years. We shared holidays, Christmases, birthdays with her, and none of us had any idea of this. None of us, and that's the truth. So to have this come out was just unbelievable to us. She did all this to not only our family, but to her own family. She dragged four family members into this. She ruined their lives along with our lives and the obvious. She took my brother's life. Ray was a good man. He was a loving father. He loved his family and he didn't deserve what happened to him. And it was just unfortunate. We're just glad it's finally over. With absolutely nothing to lose, Carla appealed that sentence, and seven years later, in 2017, she was granted a, granted a new trial after the Maryland Court of Appeals ruled in a 4-3 decision split that the judge in her case made a mistake when he addressed the jury. Her trial has yet to start in that case, but in my opinion, it'd be highly unlikely if she is acquitted as the other defendants are already serving their life sentences. Now, this case was notorious in Maryland because, as stated before, it was the first time that uh, a battered wife syndrome defense was used in a murder for hire case. Yeah, they've used it before, but usually, you know, the husband or boyfriend or whatever is actually in the midst of killing you, not something that, that was planned. You know, look at like the burning bed case. If, if anybody can remember the story about the burning bed fire faucet. Um, she had documented proof where, like, she burnt, ended up burning her husband um, to death in his bed. But did call it, where was your proof? Where was your proof? If he had been doing this to you over years and years and years, you have, you never went to the police. It sounded like to me, you know, why didn't you leave? You, you know, y'all owned the gas station. Y'all wasn't broke. It, it, you didn't want to leave the money. You know, um, you should have possibly. If, if he was abusing you like this, maybe, like I said, this should have been done in the midst of him abusing you. I feel sorry for his family, but I really feel sorry for your family. Their lives were ruined because they basically was just trying to help you out. And look where they at. Look where they at. And because you took this to trial, you got life plus 40. I spoke with Carla before, like several times. I used to work at a law firm that did criminal defense and she would call in. And she is a grandmotherly, nice type woman and all of that but she has nothing to lose i would probably fight too if i was facing life plus 40 or if i'm sitting to that because i don't see her coming out one day i really i it depends i do see her she was granted a new trial who knows what's going to happen with that but um to be honest with you call it you planned his murder 
You planned this murder and the, your other family members are already serving their life sentences. What make you think that you're going to be released while they're still incarcerated? Sheesh. This is one of the rare times that a female in murder in Maryland also was facing a death penalty. I remember this case clearly and I was just like, wow. You know, one day she probably will be released one day. We have yet to see when that happens. For this season, season three, each unsolved homicide will profile a victim who was transgender. While conducting my research on all the unsolved homicide victims in Maryland, I was completely shocked, completely surprised, first off, by the number of victims who were transgender. And then I was shocked by how nothing seems like it was done. I mean, no real questioning of witnesses, no talking to friends, no talking to family, definitely no DNA testing of stuff like that. That's stuff you see on TV. Um, like, to me, it seems like not enough investigation was done. Many other family members had to find out that their loved ones was killed by watching it on the news, seeing it online, hearing about it through friends, you know, because there was no real communication or with them, the family, there was no communication by law enforcement or anything, no real effort to find them. So the detectives just assumed just because the victim was transgender that, oh yeah, this person got killed because they was living a double life. Oh, this person was tricking or they was running around or they was, they was this, they was that, you know, but even so, even if all of that was true, Look at it like this. You out paying for sex. So what does that say about you? Don't be mad because you like what you like. Be mad at yourself. Like, who made you the judge and jury on who gets to live and who gets to die because you mad at yourself? Every single victim of homicide deserves justice. Every member of their victim's family deserves justice and they deserve answers no matter the lifestyle, no matter what they did with their lives. So for this season, season three, the spotlight on all of the unsolved homicides that are profiled, the victims were transgender. On this episode, the unsolved shooting murder of 27-year-old Ashanti Carmen is profiled. The International Transgender Day of Visibility is a national holiday that's celebrated on March 31st. It's a day that is dedicated to celebrating and acknowledging the accomplishments, the achievements made by the transgender and gender non-conforming community. It's also a day that focuses on all the work that still needs to be done to be truly recognized and respected by the general public. Unfortunately, on the eve of this national holiday, during the early morning hours of March the 30th, 2019, a little after 6 a.m. in the morning, shots rang out in an area where transgenders were known to frequent to congregate and to engage in prostitution. Just a few weeks after two transgender females were beaten and attacked non-fatally, 27-year-old Ashanti Carmen was struck with bullets. Shot several times, 911 was called and paramedics pronounced her dead at the scene. Ashanti was shot in the 5000 block of Josh Street, a block away from Easton Avenue in Fairmont Heights in Prince George's County right at the Maryland DC line. Ashanti's murder completely devastated her fiance of one month who told reporters for ABC7 News 
that he hadn't seen or heard from her since the night before they had gone to dinner in a movie. He tearfully said that he couldn't imagine why anybody would want to kill her. Calling Ashanti the perfect woman and the love of his life, her fiance commented to reporters, she's gone and she doesn't deserve it. She was the type of lady that wanted something out of life. She could have made it. Until I leave this earth, I'm gonna continue on loving her in my heart, body, and soul. I'm gonna miss her face every day. I'm gonna miss her smile. I'm gonna miss every inch of her. Ashanti, who was from Alexandria, Virginia, had been born a man, but for years, she lived fully as a woman. Reportedly, her family had rejected her for being transgender and she had made a living working at the Dunkin' Donuts in Old Town, Alexandria, Virginia, had been recently promoted, recently awarded Employee of the Month, and was about to be promoted to manager for all of her hard work. I had seen her, I believe on Tuesday, because she would come through my office at HIPS. She wasn't someone that frequented the streets a lot, so that's why it's so shocking and the community is stunned. I've been getting calls all day about this murder, a spokesman for the LGBTQ community responded to ABC7 News. On April the 2nd, 2019, a candlelight vigil was held in Ashanti's honor and memory in the 5600 block of Jaw Street near the location where she was killed. About 100 people showed up to honor Ashanti's life and to bring awareness to all of the attacks on transgender in the community. I can't call it hate. I don't know what happened. I do know what led up to it. All we can do is plead that someone comes forward with information. I believe that eventually something will come out of it that will shed light on what happened, a transgender activist commented to the press. And another transgender activist released a statement that read, the transgender community and other LGBTQ organizations joins the Carmen family and friends in mourning this senselessness. Her murder reminds us all of how often the transgender community is targeted for violence in our society. Sadly, violence against transgender people has become far too common in many cities. While this murder was just across the the Eastern Avenue line and happened in Maryland, Ashanti is well known and loved in the DC area by many. Now look people, <laughs> people have nothing, ugh, like seriously, the police have nothing, no clues, no leads, no hard evidence, regardless of who did what, a human being was shot dead in the streets and the person or people who did it needs to be caught. So if you have any information that can lead to an arrest that leads to an, a conviction in this unsolved homicide, please do not hesitate to call this number right here. You can call Homicide Detectives at 1-800-411-TIPS. Again, that number is 1-800-411-TIPS or T-I-P-S. You can remain anonymous people and guess what? The Prince George's County Police Department is offering a reward of up to $25,000 in this particular homicide. Do the right thing, people. It's, it's simple. Thank you for tuning in this week. Please be sure to subscribe to this podcast 
for updates on future spine-tingling, hair-raising, bizarre episodes of True Crime Stories in Maryland. Also, please be sure to check out all of the true crime books that are related to this podcast, which are entitled Maryland's Most Notorious Murders, 1990-2008, Maryland's Unsolved Homicides, Volume 1, and the upcoming release, Maryland's Most Notorious Murders, 2009-2020. All of these books, as well as my other true life books, including the bestseller, Junkie H. Baltimore Story, are all available on Amazon.com. Be sure to tune in next week where another high-profile homicide will be profiled and examined on Maryland's most notorious murders. This has been a real-life production. <laughs>